listeners, my name is Jason Jeffries, and I am your host for Bookin', brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is New York Times best-selling author Therese Ann Fowler. Therese is the author of Z, a novel of Zelda Fitzgerald, and A Well-Behaved Woman, a novel of the Vanderbilts. Her new novel is A Good Neighborhood, published by our friends at St. Martin's Press. Therese, welcome to the program. Hey, Jason. It's an honor to have you here. And Therese, I've known you for six years or so. We first met in the lead-up to the 2014 North Carolina Literary Festival, which is now the North Carolina Book Festival, when you did an event with us at Heist Brewery in Charlotte, North Carolina, with Jeff Jackson and Marcel Crickenberger. And I was on your website preparing for this interview and clicked over to your speaking profile. And Therese, in all of these years, I did not know that you were one of the first females in the USA to play Little League Baseball. What position did you play? I played a whole bunch of different positions, and none of them very well, frankly. Um, yeah, one of the first girls to play, which mm. I'm surprised you didn't know that about me. I did not. We should we should talk more. We should. Yeah, do you still follow baseball? A little bit, but not like I did back then. Who's your team? My team now, Kansas City. Kansas City. Why is that? Well, because John is a, my husband, John Kessel, yeah. author, mm-hmm. a Kansas City fan from way back. Yeah. See, I always think of John um, with Buffalo. Well, he is from Buffalo, mm-hmm. and then he did his PhD work in um, at KU. Right, right. I am a Giants fan, having lived in San Francisco for a long time, but then um, my son loves baseball, and the closest team is the Nationals, so we right. had, had been going to a lot of those games. Now we may not be able to afford tickets anymore. But I should have lied and said that I'm a Cubs fan because I'm from you know Illinois, and mm-hmm. if you're from Illinois, you're supposed to root for the Cubs, uh, except my uh, uncle who roots for the White Sox. Mm-hmm. It's all wrong. Yeah, yeah. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. I like the White Sox back when they had Frank Thomas. Um, thank you, Therese. Uh, your last two novels, Z and A Well-Behaved Woman, were historical novels about women, Zelda Fitzgerald and Alva Vanderbilt Belmont, uh, who needed more of their stories to be told. This new novel, A Good Neighborhood, is a departure in scope and subject matter from these two novels um, that by all ways of accounting were wildly successful. Uh, not that anyone would ever want to paint an artist such as yourself into <laughs> a box, but why this sudden left turn? Oh, that's such a nice thing to say, an artist such as myself. <laughs> well, it probably does look like a left turn because the expectation that most readers have and certainly people in publishing have is that if you've done something well and successfully you should keep doing more of that you know do the same thing just different and I actually thought that that's what I would do because I'm usually a sensible person but when I was compelled by this idea I just felt like, you know, I'm going to write it and see what happens. And fortunately, the outcome was really favorable. You know, the book's not out until, I don't know when you're going to broadcast this, but not out until the 10th. But um, signs are, are good that the public is going to receive it well. Absolutely. And um, I do want to ask you to set this novel up for us, but by way of doing so, I want to ask if this novel, A Good Neighborhood, took off from a true-to-life event. <laughs> yes. Well, we may, we may have talked about this off-air in the past. It started with this oak tree that was growing, is still growing, I hope, in the backyard of the house that I was living in a few years ago. And 
next door to our home there, a house had been torn down and a new house was being built. And the driveway for that house was all the way down the property line alongside our our fence. And was going to certainly impact the roots of that tree. And so I was watching over time as that that tree reacted to the construction disruption and the compaction of its roots. And I had I just had tremendous anxiety over what was going to happen with this tree. And at the same time, had a lot of anxiety about what was happening in the United States, uh, politically, uh, social, socially, culturally, like all of this progress that had been made through my lifetime growing up in the 1970s and the 1980s seemed to be being undone. So we're looking at, um, you know, equal rights and civil rights and environmental protections. And I was really distressed about that too. And so all of those things made a kind of a stew in my head and resulted in the germs of this novel. And I wrote it actually pretty quickly over the summer of, what year was that, 2018. And um, so it's kind of a passion project in that regard. I had things to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't imagine that you'd have anything to feel anxious about politically, <laughs> right. Therese. Um, this novel, A Good Neighborhood, is set in North Carolina, perhaps a less glamorous setting than those of your previous two novels, but one that is certainly closer to home and one that a larger percentage of your readers are likely to identify with. Um, talk about your decision to set A Good Neighborhood here in North Carolina. I guess the decision was just made for me by the notion of who the characters were. It was an organic process, right? So I had to write about say New York City and Paris when I was writing about Zelda Fitzgerald and I had to write about New York City and Paris <laughs> when I was writing about Alva Vanderbilt so those those settings were given to me but I live in central North Carolina and the things that were distressing me are happening you know right outside my door and interestingly as I've been talking to people in the run-up to publication of this novel I've learned that the kinds of issues that I'm talking about in this novel are happening all over the country. So I could have probably set this in, you know, Dallas or Cleveland or Atlanta, right? Pick your your city because this kind of thing is happening everywhere. Um, So why locally? Well, you know, it fit. Excellent. Thank you. Um, In the acknowledgments section at the beginning of the galley, uh, you speak about the difficulties of you, a white woman, writing from the perspective of two African-American characters. Can you talk about this a little bit, maybe referencing Zadie Smith and perhaps citing the current controversy surrounding the novel American Dirt? Yeah, so when I was initially conceiving this novel, I had some concern because I knew that that some of the characters in this novel would be African-American. I should say that there are five characters' points of view that the story takes, and so three of those characters are white characters. And the trouble, what? The, the, I don't want to say the controversy about cultural appropriation, because it's not really a controversy. I think it's understood that people ought not to take stories that don't belong to them. Um, But in this particular situation, I wasn't going to be writing about 
a culture that was not my own. And so I was still quite concerned about doing it correctly. So I was at a book festival in Columbia, um, Columbia, Missouri, and Zadie Smith was the keynote speaker at that festival. And a person in the audience, possibly a writer, I don't remember, uh, had a similar question as I had uh, in terms of what did Zadie Smith think about the issue of white people writing stories that uh, featured people of color. And Zadie Smith's answer was really quite simple. It was that everyone should write anything that they desire. She said she herself had written outside of her perspective by writing about white characters. And we could say, of course, white people aren't marginalized in the way that people of color are, but she said it didn't really make very much difference in terms of how the writer should approach it. The writer's job is always to write responsibly about the other, whoever that other happens to be. And so if you're going to do that, just do your homework. Basically, do whatever you want, but recognize that if you do it poorly, people are going to, you know, come after you for that. And that indeed seems to be what was behind the situation with American Dirt. Now, when I read American Dirt, I did not see those problems that um, the Mexican-American authors raised about the book. But once I understood what their objections to that book were, I thought, oh, yeah, okay, I see that very clearly now. And I think it's important when that feedback is given to an author that they recognize that they what to acknowledge that they didn't know what they didn't know and so to also make sure i didn't run into that problem i had sensitivity reads done before the book went into into um what do you call that production and made sure that if there was something that i was tone deaf about that i could correct that first so fortunately the feedback since the book was finished has been has been really good in terms of uh, African-American readers getting in touch with me and saying that I did handle those characters' points of view with with sensitivity. I'm relieved. (laughs) Thank you, Therese. And the narrator's voice in this novel is very strong. Um, It is an authoritative, authorial voice that is removed from the action and sort of removed from its time as far as trends in the literature of today are concerned. Please tell us how you landed on this voice for your narrator. Right. The point of view in this novel is taken uh, by by a group, right? The collective first person is what we call that in craft terms. The narration is done by the neighborhood, and it's a throwback point of view choice that really kind of has its start, I think, in oral storytelling, and then is adopted by um, writers in what the 1500s 1600s writing i don't know shakespeare for example you have someone come on stage they tell you some things that you're going to know about the story to follow in order to kind of guide the audience in the story that will follow and it's particularly effective in cautionary tales and so when i was deciding how to tell this story point of view it's one of my favorite craft issues and I think I just felt like that might work, but I had never used it before. And uh, tried it out, and, and it was exactly the right fit for this story. So we get this, this what, narrative intrusions from the Greek chorus, if you will, helping to guide the reader through the, the situation, which um, I think some readers are puzzled by, frankly, because it's something, like you said, it's not a familiar 
uh, style of storytelling, but it has been done very well, I think, in a few reasonably contemporary novels. Justin Torres's novel, um, We Are Animals, starts out with that kind of narration. Uh, Karen Joy Fowler's novel, The Jane Austen Book Club, is done that way. I remember reading The Jane Austen Book Club and being puzzled, like, who is this who's talking to me in this story? And I probably get some of that from readers, too, unless they listen to our podcast first, in which case they will understand. Excellent. Thank you so much, Therese. Listeners, we are going to take a break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Therese Ann Fowler. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story. One that supports community. Listeners of Bookin' can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin', B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Therese Ann Fowler, author of A Good Neighborhood, published by our friends at St. Martin's Press. And listeners, at this point, I'm going to talk about some specifics of the book that are not necessarily spoilers, but that do allude to specific plot points of this novel, A Good Neighborhood. So I want to warn you now, give you the opportunity to pause this podcast and return to it after you have read the book. I'm going to give you a couple more seconds to pause your device, and we should be good to go. Therese, do you feel like this excellent novel, A Good Neighborhood, is in conversation with another excellent novel, Lolita by Vladimir Nabokov, or any other novels that you would like to bring up? That's a really interesting question. You know, Lolita is a favorite novel of mine, and I think it's references find their way into things I write, whether overtly or covertly, and in this case, overtly. Yes, in some ways, I would say it's in conversation with the book Lolita because, yeah, I don't want to give a whole lot away, even to people who did not pause their devices. All right. Well, thank you, Therese. Um, I do want to talk for a moment about the character Tom Holt Aston, the white father to Xavier, the mixed race high school senior who's one of the characters at the center of this novel in chapter 23 tom visits his family in jackson mississippi and at the beginning of this chapter you write about mississippi quote um the main thing to emphasize here is that the state of mississippi's largest airport bears the name of a black hero of the civil rights movement while the state itself continues to fly a flag that has as a significant part of its design the entire flag of the confederacy this kind of dichotomy is the south in a nutshell can you talk about this description of the south a little bit i've been living here in north carolina since 1995 so i, I come from a place where it's a whole different culture and so maybe that makes it easier for me to see this interesting dichotomy of the occasional celebration of say civil rights heroes as is the case in in Mississippi there and yet the the per 
perpetration of this history of of not just segregation but overt discrimination uh, white supremacy that the confederate flag has come to symbolize in today's culture people are still flying that flag almost as a protest against the progress that has been made in civil rights legislation and so for me that is fascinating so the airport um, when i was doing the research for this little piece of the story i sort of fixated on that as representing it's almost like a metaphor really for what is happening in the south right progress going head to head with with stubborn resistance to progress and maybe that's the whole nation right now yeah um as a brief aside i uh, when I was an undergrad, I went to the University of South Carolina where they flew the Confederate flag over the state house until, I don't know, maybe five years ago or so. That's <laughs> um, distressing. It was, and it was, it never, um, it was never not shocking to see it there, even though it was as part of day-to-day life. I, th- I feel like there are people in the South who, who fail to recognize or choose not to engage with the symbolism of the flag right that it's just um, history right that's the put it put that in quotes right history uh, that's being celebrated with that flag and um, well I respectfully disagree with that attitude yeah right on thank you Therese um, I want to highlight an author that you quote on page 168 and that author is Fyodor Dostoevsky. Uh, the quote is, what is hell? I maintain that it is the suffering of being unable to love. I read this quote by Fyodor Dostoevsky in a book by Teresa Ann Fowler and it made me think of another author, William Shakespeare, uh, especially in the context of the story you were telling. Can you talk about this quote by Dostoevsky and tell us why you chose to place it in this novel? It has to do with being prevented from access to the thing, or in this case, person that you uh, that you love, that you adore, and the the hell of den- denial, frankly. So it's very specific to what's happening in the novel at that point, but it's also broadly representational of what happens in the story in full, and I. Again, don't want to say a whole lot about that, except that people should, after they've finished reading the book, kind of come back and think about that statement. Um, it's fun and fascinating for me to see how you can can thread these these thoughts from great writers into contemporary stories, and it makes me realize, frankly, that very little changes over time, that the, the hell that Dostoevsky was referring to is the same hell that, you know, an 18-year-old might feel in their lives today. That's why literature matters. All right. Thank you, Therese. I want to talk about Brad Whitman, uh, who has a great name, by the way. Mm-hmm. How does a man... Um, who knows he is guilty but doesn't care because he knows a jury will never, quote, give a shit about a black woman's tree, unquote, um, become a pillar of his community because he has a catchy commercial for his HVAC company. I mean, uh, the existence of a Brad Whitman is not a fantastic stretch of the imagination, is it? Uh, gosh, no, I wish it were. If only people like Brad Whitman were fictional entirely. No, we have a lot of Brad Whitmans around us and... Certainly, uh, during the uh, Brett Kavanaugh hearings, 
my literary agent was texting my, or my foreign rights agent was texting my literary agent was texting me saying, oh my God, Brett Kavanaugh is Brad. Like, these privileged white entitled men are everywhere around us and you know i do not mean that all white men are like this right but that there are so many of them and how can a person like that also be the guy who says what you just quoted from the the book it's it's really fascinating what i do in the in the novel is i present brad as the version of him that you would see if you just meet him whether you're you know using the services of his company or you've seen him on a, on a TV commercial or you run into him at a restaurant he's a southern guy who loves everybody and who everybody loves and he's affable and he's attractive and he seems sweet and he's charming and who doesn't like a guy like that right but he also has this idea that he's sort of the master of the universe and therefore you know whatever he thinks ought to happen surely will happen he can make it happen and usually he's right and um yeah unfortunately too many of those guys around thank you therese um finally there's so much more to talk about in this novel, but I don't want to give too much away. Uh, so I'll ask this last question. One of the best and most heartbreaking relationships in this novel is that between Xavier and his mother, mm-hmm. Valerie. Um, there is one scene on page 185 when Valerie sees Xavier and Juniper through the window, knows Xavier is making a mistake, but decides in that moment not to mom him for many reasons. One being that she knows he needs to make his own mistakes, and two, because of the way Juniper is looking at her son. How hard is it, Therese, to not parent in situations like this, both in the world with your own children and as an author with your characters? Oh my gosh, it's so hard. So hard as a, as a parent myself. I raised two boys, and fortunately I, I didn't over-mom them too much they might tell you a different story but i think that's true uh very difficult when you recognize that the the mistake needs to be made so that the person can learn you know and grow and be independent valerie is getting ready to send xavier off to college in a few months and so she knows that even though the two of them have been exceptionally close over the years because she was widowed when he was just a baby that that she has to let him you know become his own man and that means not trying to guide every decision which is not to say that that they don't have conversations elsewhere in this story about how ill-advised she thinks this romance is but at this particular moment when she sees the the kids together she she makes that conscious decision um it's a real heart-tugging spot for me in the story excellent thank you so much therese Listeners, I've been speaking with Therese Ann Fowler, author of the fantastic new novel, A Good Neighborhood, which you will be hearing a great deal about if you haven't already. Therese, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Jason. Once again, I would like to thank Therese Ann Fowler for joining me. Signed copies of A Good Neighborhood can be purchased at www.quailridgebooks.com while supplies last. Quail Ridge Books is offering free shipping for the month of March. Please navigate to www.quailridgebooks.com and support your local community bookstore. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Booking. Okay.